Can we work up to that one? Actually, it's not clear to me that the quotation, who, who is that a quotation from? Okay, I, I don't know whether you heard the quotation in the back, but in the process of dying, we go through the same stages as in meditation, higher, higher stages of meditation. I really have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> but it, I mean, <laughs> I actually don't mean to make light of the question because it's an important question in terms of actual experience, obviously I don't have it. Um, but I often think of meditation practice as practice for dying. You know, and just that ability to be with whatever experience happens, and that's what, to me at this point anyway, is unknown. But the practice that we're doing now is exactly that development or strengthening of awareness which can be with anything. And that's why there's so much emphasis on the development of that equanimity or impartiality towards pleasant and unpleasant experience. Because whatever the process of dying may be, you know, whatever physical, psychological events unfold, uh, the more practiced we are, you know, in staying aware, staying open, staying present, it can help but be a help. Uh, mostly in the Theravada, in, in, as far as um, I'm familiar with, in the suttas, there's not a lot or, or the same degree of uh, explicitness as one might find, for example, in the Tibetan Book of the Dead or... Uh, and mostly what you find in the suttas when the Buddha would visit people who are, were dying, uh, the instruction would be exactly what we're doing now. He said, even though your body may be weak, your senses may be weak, you may be filled with unbearable pain, can your mind stay strong? Can you, can you remain mindful? So that would be the instruction or the reminder uh, you know, to people as they go through that process. That's really all I could say, I think. Seeing? Right. Yeah, it, it's really uh, the fact that our visual field, the question was about uh, using the note of seeing 
and really how that works in terms of staying disentangled. Um, the visual field for most of us uh, is a very predominant domain of experience. I mean, it's there in the background, if not the foreground, much of the time. And yet in the meditation practice, we usually don't seem to give it the same importance other than kind of the, the fleeting images that may pass through the mind. Uh, and so what happens, what I've noticed, is just that, especially in moving about or in situations of, uh, where a lot of people are gathering, like in the dining room, for example, or coming into the walking room and there are a lot of people there, if we're not really mindful in that moment of first contact with, with seeing, what happens is that very quickly and very easily, it's as if the attention goes out through the eye door, makes up whatever little story we make up about what we're seeing. You know, we like that person, we don't like that one, whatever, whatever the story is. And get lost in that, all because we have not, simply not been mindful that sight is arising in the same way that we could be mindful of sound arising. And so I think that it's helpful in those situations, or just from time to time, to make the note of seeing as a reminder to be very receptive, just let the awareness be very settled, very back, so that sight, visual, visual objects are received, rather than the sense of you know, the mind going out to them. And I think you'll notice the difference between that quality of receptivity and the quality of the mind sort of engaging. And it's very helpful, it's just that I noticed how much of the reaction of mind around a whole variety of things actually has its source in an unmindful moment of seeing. <laughs> I think as a uh, what's the word an intermediate skillful means you know one might make that construction uh, just as a way of 
getting in touch with an awareness that uh, feels more spacious or more open. But you, you don't want to forget that all of that is a mental construction. Yeah. Uh, so if you use it in the service of just creating that openness and then letting go of all that and simply be with the energy, the excited energy, that would be fine. You might find, uh, after some time, that you don't actually have to go through that whole constructing process. But it's really... Uh, simply by settling back into the body with an attitude of openness. And something I've mentioned often, and, and which I think serves that same purpose, minus the whole construction, is simply the stepping back and asking, okay, what's happening? So it's this energetic move, it's like that, instead of trying to keep the mind narrowly focused. Okay, what's happening? It's, the attention is just really on, the, on that move back, move back uh, that's more receptive. Yeah, yeah. And, and sort of a willingness just to take everything, and it's, it's really a, a uh, quality of open acceptance. Just that willingness to be with whatever it is, even if it's a big chaotic energy. So instead of having the mind narrowly focused, okay, what's happening? Um, one, one, just point uh, in your in your question. It might be interesting to see if there's a difference between excitement and restlessness. You know, so that if you're feeling an excited energy, and that's the word that comes to mind, excitement, you might want to just see if, just label it as that, without necessarily assuming it's restlessness. You know, it might be the same, but it actually might be slightly different. And so the one is aware simply of excitement. question about whether in uh, becoming aware of that quality of awareness when we come back from being lost, uh, whether there's a kind of right effort in holding that. Um, in a way it's similar, it's a similar answer. It may be that that quality of holding it uh, helps you a bit you know, and becoming familiar with it, but I think it's more a question of recognition than holding. Uh, because the quality of awareness 
is the nature of the mind. The nature of the mind is awareness. So it's not actually something that has to be held. It's always there, it's just that we get distracted from it. So it seems to be more that it's a question of recognition of that. Um, the, the potential danger in trying to hold it is that you're actually creating a sense of self holding on to something instead of resting in what is the natural spontaneous nature of mind that doesn't require holding or sustaining because it is the nature of mind. Does that make any sense to you? Uh, That's all for the moment. <laughs> uh, twice this week, <clears throat> I've had uh, something that triggered very strong Papancha mind for me. And as that occurred, I was in effect really grateful that it was happening here because I, I had this sense that this happened hundreds or maybe thousands of times in my life. And this was an opportunity to, <clears throat> so I started noting as quickly as I could anger, defensiveness, petulance, fear. And then I just kind of got lost because the feelings were tumbling. And pretty soon it was such a complex tangle that I felt what I felt at that point was overwhelmed. And I said, well, I'm overwhelmed, and that's okay too. But I guess what I'm asking, is that a common? <laughs> is it common that people have emotions that tumble one after another like that when they get triggered and then you get lost in that? Never. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's pretty common. <laughs> Well, I think there are two interesting, or there are probably many interesting things that do two come to mind. One is um, what's been really interesting for me, especially with persistent, either persistent cycles of tumbling or persistent tapes, you know, emotional tapes, to really see how very often they are triggered by an initial thought or image. You know, and if we don't catch that first thought, psh, we're just in that whirlpool. Uh, and how very often it's just a single thought which is triggering the whole chain. So one of the things that, that you might do is see if you can not only be tracking or trying to track the various emotions, but really be alert for what it is that is beginning that whole cycle, the trigger point, and then keeping the radar out for the arising of that. The connection between thought and emotion is quite amazing. You know, we can be going along, going along, and an unnoticed thought comes into the mind, and psh, it just sets off a, 
you know, a whole whirlwind. So that's, that's one thing, to really be aware of that trigger thought. The second thing is, it was interesting in your description, as you were describing being tumbled, you know, by the various emotions, that at a certain point you said, well, I'm tumbling, you know, or something like that. It would be very helpful to look, and this goes back to that, that other question about the nature of awareness, to look back at the mind out of which that thought came. Because when you were tumbling and then the thought comes, well, I guess I'm just tumbling in these emotions, in the moment of that thought you weren't tumbling. That was a moment of clarity, of awareness, of mindfulness. Okay, what's that mind? What's the mind? What's the nature of the mind that is knowing that uh, current of emotion? And you'll see that the nature of that mind, the nature of that awareness, is really not uh, affected. Why not? No, I just grateful. I don't know in the context, the context in which you felt the gratitude, but I think, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. I think that that's a, a beautiful quality, really, to connect with and nurture throughout the Dharma, throughout our practice with respect to whatever it is that we're saying. Uh, you know, in situations like that, just seeing something that we haven't seen before, even in situations of a lot of difficulty, there, could, there can be a kind of gratitude. It's, it's in the sense that the Dalai Lama often speaks of uh, having gratitude towards your enemy, because it, that person is showing you where your limits are. Right? And, and it's really the chance to develop patience, understanding, and disentanglement. So that quality of gratitude, I think, is really a, a beautiful one. And I don't know whether you remember, I think I mentioned this uh, early in the retreat, the story of no parachute, no ground. <laughs> Do I want to save this for another talk? <laughs> Well, you may be hearing it again. <laughs> it reminded me, your, your image, because there's a story of somebody uh, dropping out of an, uh, an airplane and, 
at first there's the exhilaration, you know, of the free fall. And then this person realizes they don't have a parachute, so they get terrified, you know, because they're falling, 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 there's no parachute. But at a certain point, they realize there's no ground. So then they just are in equanimity. <laughs> because there's no danger. The question is about the balance or how to understand sort of focusing on an object as opposed to open awareness and how to balance the two. Um, there are a few different pieces in this question. One is Well, underneath it all, keep in mind that at different times in practice, as a response to different conditions, you may want to be doing one thing or another. So it's not to think of it in terms of right or wrong or getting it right. right? Because at some point, some are appropriate, other times others are. So, for example, to take just one extreme, either because the mind is wandering a lot, you know, and you just, you just lost a lot, or because you have a certain intention to really develop uh, a strong one-pointedness of mind. You could be with the object in a very uh, intentional, determined, focused way. And the image that has come to mind sometimes in the past is just like riding a bucking bronco. You know, where all the effort is just to hold on. Sometimes, for example, one could be with the breath with that kind of energy. So this is one extreme. Right? There's just this determined, I'm going to stay with the breath, not let anything pull me off. Of course, things will, but then uh, you come back again. Uh, sometimes that, that really uh, lends a quality of strength when the mind is just scattered a lot. Okay, I'm going to just... And you really train the mind, uh, and that that can be quite effortful. You know, you're really making an effort to do that. The development of concentration is always helpful. I mean, it's a very powerful quality of mind, and so time, spending time developing that steadiness. Uh, just at different times in one's practice is always a helpful thing to do. Okay. So that's one piece. Another piece is that concentration can also be developed with attention on a single object like the breath, but being in a very receptive mode, so that you're not kind of hanging on for dear life, like riding the bronco, but more like listening to music where the object is, is the sound, 
and you're choosing to stay in that one domain of experience, just hearing, but you're letting it come to you. And so you're not, it's not that kind of effortfulness. It's much softer, it's more receptive. So, for example, you could be with the breath in that way. There could be an intentionality to develop the one-pointedness, the samadhi, very soft, very receptive way where you're focusing on that domain of experience. So you're not open to everything else, particularly, but you're also not holding on tightly to it. So that also will develop the samadhi. One can also develop both the samadhi and insight in a very choiceless way by just settling back and being open to whatever is arising. The breath, a sound, a sensation, a thought, and moment after moment just being with whatever it is that's appearing. Now that, of course, for most people has a lot of appeal because we just settle back and really... It's at the other end of this spectrum from the bucking bronco. You know, sit back, don't do anything. Just rest in that quality of awareness. Some interesting things can be learned here. If the mind is steady enough, stable enough to stay with that, because in this open, choiceless awareness, uh, you really can see, although the same thing actually could be seen working with the breath as well, just the exact, that the nature of awareness, when it's undistracted, when it's not pulled off in some mental proliferation, the nature of that awareness is in itself exact and precise. So it's the image or the simile is like a well-polished mirror that reflects what comes in front of it exactly, not because it's making any effort to, but because that's its nature. And so the nature of the mind you might, you might experiment with this in the walking. It's really, you know, the Tibetan word ho, which means how amazing. And you find it in so many of the texts. It really is amazing. You're walking and the sensations of the movement are simply appearing. And when the mind is undistracted, they are known exactly and precisely in the very moment of their appearing. And it's not that we're doing anything to make that happen. It's just, it's just happening. Because that is the nature of the mind. To know exactly, precisely, unobstructedly. So, lost my train of thought. when we're with that kind of recognition, whether just with the breath or the movement and sensation, or in a more choiceless way, we can also develop that one-pointedness or steadiness of mind. The problem is, sometimes for people, that in sitting in a very open, choiceless way, that the habit of distractedness is still too strong. The mind is just lost in its usual habit of getting lost over and over and over again in thought. So then 
staying in that mode doesn't seem to me so helpful. It would be helpful more to move toward the other end of the spectrum, you know, where, the, where there's more effortful determination. Okay, just be with the breath, you know, or whatever the object is. Um, does this address what you were asking? Well, for, for example, when you're listening to music that you really love, you're just sitting there, just imagine yourself sitting you know, in a comfortable chair, cross-legged. <laughs> <laughs> and the music's playing. You know, and if you, really, you can be right there, you can be really concentrated on that music, moment after moment, and it's just appearing and yet be very receptive. You're not doing anything. You're not doing this. You're not leaning into it in order to hear it better. It's really that state of relaxed, open receptivity. And yet it's focused on a single aspect of experience, sound. Well, you you can be doing that same thing with anything, with the breath, with movement. Now just think... As you're doing the walking meditation, practice as if you're listening to your favorite music. It's just a flow of sensation appearing. It's appearing spontaneously, magically, moment after moment. You you could be or not, depending if if you're right there and you're really focused. You might drop the noting for a while. If the noting helps you stay right there, then you could use the noting. A lot of us at different times go through a lot of emotional re-experiencing emotions, deep emotional trauma, which often develops. And uh, one thing that creates confusion for me is uh, there's pretty much nothing in the text, nothing in the, in the ancient traditions about this. And uh, certainly helps to create the sense of one being uh, more normal. Than Even though it's you know, more common than the way. I never quite understand that. The question was about how you know, for many Western yogis, at one time or another, there's uh, often a reliving of early childhood stuff or pre-verbal, sometimes, uh, you know, in the form of intense emotion that comes up, that seems to well up, you know, because we open to that space. And yet in the Eastern tradition, uh, it's not talked about a lot. And so it raises some doubt you know, is something happening that's not supposed to be happening? Or, and why does there seem to be so much of a difference you know, in the Western yogis and, and uh, practice in Asia? Um, I don't really know. It's, um, it, raises, it raises quite interesting... Uh, I don't know exactly what the right field of study would be... 
like sociology of religion, something like that. You know, of just seeing the impact of different cultures and different cultural understandings, the effect of that on what people experience. Now, because I'm sure there's an effect. We're all conditioned in very different ways, not only individually, you know, and, and family, but also culturally. And it's a very different culture. You know, so I think that's a piece of it. Um, the basic practice, though, um, is always the same. You know, and that is mindfulness, balance, you know, in whatever it is that's coming up, and to use whatever skillful means are available and appropriate at a particular time to find those. Um, I mean, the, when people came to the Buddha, and sometimes not, it was not so much kind of early childhood stuff, but there are some suttas where, where people came overwhelmed by grief, for example, you know, and kind of the mind crazed by grief. Um, and so often the first, or what the Buddha would do as it's described in the text, is in one way or another try to bring the mind back to balance, often through the power of his metta. It's just like he uh, tamed that mad elephant which was charging at, at him, you know, just, just through the power of the metta. Uh, and so there definitely is recognition of the mind in states where it gets out of balance and the need to come back into balance. Uh, and then it's just a question of finding the right means. Okay, the, the further question was, at times in these very, uh, what, what might one call pre-verbal s- states, uh, the idea of balance seems like an adult concept, you know, and doesn't seem necessarily helpful uh, at that time. Uh, it is an adult <laughs> It, it's it's a it's a quality of a mind that's in balance, which sees which sees the importance of that, uh, and so when people are going through this kind of intense emotion, sometimes the guidance needs to come, or at least in part, come from the outside, you know, as a way of finding the way to bring the mind back to... Balance means openness, acceptance, uh, not being carried away by. But of course, in those states, that's the very nature of it. You are, you are being carried away, and so some help is needed. 
to both hold it and to experience it, and yet not to uh, be drowning in it. And so sometimes from oneself, uh, it may be quite difficult. You know, we may need an outside perspective. Just to, just some, some really simple things, you know, of reminding you of the possibility of going for a walk. <laughs> That's a way, you know. So simple things like that uh, could be a help. Uh, I don't want to get into a, to too much of a discussion. Uh, I mean, this, this, this is a, a vast area, uh, and I actually don't feel like I have a huge expertise in working through uh, traumatic material, you know, of a certain of a certain kind. Do you ever use the, the note painted tiger? Remember the, the Dalai Lama's teaching, which I mentioned in that last talk on fear. Uh, if you're worried about something, and there's something you can do about it, there's no need to worry. And if there isn't something you can do about it, there's no need to worry. And so in a way, it's kind of bringing some discriminating wisdom to that situation. But if it's something that's repeatedly coming up, and it's not... Uh, the mind is not getting disentangled from it simply by seeing it as a thought, which of course would be the most liberating to see that this is just a mental fabrication uh, that you really don't know what's going to happen. So if you can't be seeing it in that way, then you might uh, you know, use a slightly different approach and just consider bringing some wise reflection, okay, is this a real situation in my life? Is it likely to happen? What are the options? You know, and so you kind of address it for a minute or two. <laughs> uh, this is a slippery slope, so I'm very cautious in... in uh, uh, Another technique which I've used for sort of obsessive futurizing is uh, just the note, not now. You know, okay, not now. Because for me that was 
a way of acknowledging the possible validity or importance of that thought, but acknowledging this is not the time to be thinking about it. You know, so it's like putting it on hold. Uh, and that, the not now was a soft acknowledgement of it, sort of released the mind from that compulsion to think about it right now. Uh, so that, that might also be of some help. Um, do you work with the underlying emotion? Uh-huh. And in terms of just really coming to that place of, okay, this is okay, just let me feel this. Not that the pains can, are just sounds, but you can relate to them like sounds. be a good idea. <laughs> How do you do that? How would you do that? Mm-hmm. You know, one of the uh, one of the most uh, useful interviews I had with Upandita, uh, of course, there were many, you know, along the way, but this was something that was so simple that I almost didn't do what he said. So I, I, I had gone in, and my mind was I can't even remember now. It's either just this run of comparing or judging or something. So it, it could well be like this futurizing of disaster. You know, it's just a pattern. It's just a pattern in the mind. And I went and I reported this, and he just said to me, be more mindful. You know, and thank you. <laughs> but then when I went out and did some walking, I actually, well, he said be more mindful. Let me try it. And it was amazing. I mean, it was, it was actually a profound instruction. You know, that often we forget that all of this proliferation is happening because we're not actually right there connecting with the moment's experience. And as the mind really connects quite carefully, connects and sustains with a breath, with a thought, it cuts through that that mental proliferation. Uh, so it might be something as simple as that. You know, because you've probably noticed, and this is, this is quite common, um, the tendency of the mind to indulge papancha. You know, that, that we get caught up in whatever particular pattern or tape we have. You know, and there's a kind of indulgence, and so sometimes, yeah, just be more mindful. 
sometimes that really cuts through. Eric? It is clear. As I said, I, um, I think that this level of working really needs to be done one-on-one, you know, because uh, it's very delicate, and to really find the right skillful means, you know, in the particular situation for both the material that's coming up, for uh, one's background in practice, uh, there's just a lot of host of considerations, which I think very difficult to generalize here. And so that's why I'm, ca- I'm, I'm just cautious or hesitant about discussing it in this, in this forum, because I think it's really a very, uh, very individual thing. So that's why I would rather, you know, I'd rather kind of explore that, but uh, I think your insights into it are very... Hard one and valuable. Could you speak to just this point about the defense mechanism kind of vaporizing things that you might be able to look at, perhaps? Uh, the question was about just following up on one point of what Eric was saying about how the defense mechanism can sometimes vaporize things you want to get a look at. For the most part, in practice, um, we don't have to go either digging or even looking for those parts of the mind that we want to investigate further, uh, because it's not, it's, it's really a different process. Uh, my experience has been that in the settling back and simply being with whatever arises, at the right time in practice, it comes. Uh, So I wouldn't try to call up the fear, for example, in order to look at fear. 
And even if it comes up and there's a kind of defense mechanism that, as you say, vaporizes it in that moment, let it go. You know. If there's some strong pattern that really needs to be looked at, it will. It will come. Uh, keep in mind that what we're doing is practicing the mind of non-attachment. Uh, and so sometimes what you are calling vaporization due to defense mechanism may be that, but it may not be. It may be seeing it in the moment it's gone. Sometimes people report in interviews a desire to want to hold on to experience in order to understand it more deeply. Uh, generally speaking, I don't think that's the direction to go. You know, because it's more about seeing the impermanent, empty nature of it all. One, yeah, I wouldn't have any kind of agenda or anticipation. Be with it however it's presenting itself. Um, from the point of view of awareness, all objects are equal. It's just something else arising and being known. You know, and so it's not a question of this or that or wanting to uh, I'd be cautious of a project mentality in the practice because uh, that in some way is just a kind of contraction and could be uh, a strengthening of a sense of I it's I didn't mention this particular story in, in the talk on fear, but uh, after I was going through and really immersed, it was that time in my life and in my practice when it was so strong. Um, and I had built up this whole story in my mind about how I was this really fearful person, had this deep conditioning and wellspring of fear, and that it was going to take... 20 lifetimes of therapy to understand it all and to untangle the knots. And Sharon and I were teaching in Texas, you know, and I was going on and on about this to her, uh, fetching about my fear. <laughs> At a certain point, she just turned to me and she said, you know, it's only a mind state. And of course, it's something I've said to people 10,000 times, so there's a certain karmic retribution. <laughs> but as sometimes happens when something is said at just the right time, you know, even if we've said it or heard it many, many times, at the right moment, you know, we can hear it. And that was, that was such a moment. I said, oh yeah, this is just a mindset. I don't have to be making up a whole story. You know about myself and about what's needed, and have a big project, uh, and it was very liberating. Doing 
I think that um, what we want to do in that situation is get okay with the controlling mind or the interfering mind or the doing mind. So instead of instead of thinking, oh, I shouldn't be doing that. I just want to be with kind of experience in a non-doing way. It's something like when people come and, this is a common experience in practice, they feel that when they attend to the breath there, in some subtle or not so subtle way, they're manipulating it or controlling it. I found that one can simply be mindful of the controlled breath. That's all, that that's what one is mindful of, rather than get lost in that tangle of, well, how can I stop controlling? Then you're trying to control the controlling, and you wind up in just the situation you describe. The possibility of just accepting the whole situation. If you're with the breath and you're controlling it, fine. Just notice that you're controlling it. There's a situation and you find your mind reactive to it or doing something, right? rather than non-doing, fine. Simply notice that that's what's happening. And that begins to create some space around that whole pattern rather than trying to change it. Because you're trying to change it, I think, will involve you in just the loop you described. And it's really much simpler. Okay. This is what's happening. <laughs> the, the doing mind, the efforting mind, the interfering mind. Just see it. I think the transition has its own uh, impact, you know, and it, it's helpful uh, just to be aware of that, to make the space for it. 
you know, you've gotten really, uh, even in ways you might not appreciate, gotten very quiet, open, sensitized. And so there is a kind of a little tumult going on, you know, as people get ready to leave and new people will be coming in. So just to acknowledge that this is what's happening, and it will have undoubtedly some effect, you know, on the mind. Um, so first, just to get easy with that, rather than be in struggle with it. Uh, but also just as a reminder, both for those who are leaving, be aware of that and try to really be respectful of the space that you know, most, of the, most of the yogis here are continuing in. Uh, and for those who are staying, uh, you know, be understanding of the fact that that energy is happening. Um, I would use the same remedy um, that I mentioned before in terms of the label, not now. You know, because again, it's the acknowledgement, yeah, these are things that have to be attended to. So if you kind of cut it off too sharply, it's not honoring their validity in that world. But when you say not now, it's acknowledging it, but just putting it aside. And this, it's a lot more gentle to the mind and more effective, I found. Are there just a time for a few more, Diana? One thing to keep in mind in just hearing kind of the few words about it is that it's really uh, each of the descriptions offered about the nature of the mind, you want to be listening to it in a way that in the moment of hearing is actually examining. So that is because as a kind of philosophical disqu- what's the word disquisition, uh, whatever, uh, that's really not of interest. You know, it's really about our own understanding in this very moment. And so, for example, we can understand even in just the moment of hearing, hearing these words, the sound. that the nature of the mind is awareness, it's spontaneous. Did you have to prepare in any way to hear that sound? No, the sound arose and was known, right in the moment of it appearing. It's invisible. You know, when you look for the mind, where can you find it? There it is. (laughs) It's not like that. Because it's invisible, it's empty, there's no thing there. It's clear, it's lucid, it's unobstructed. It's simply, you could say, that which knows. But even to call it a that is too much. And that's why to simply be resting 
in the moment-to-moment -moment recognition of it is so amazing. That there's this... <laughs> it's what our whole life is about. It's not even about it. it. Our life is the manifestation of this. You know, but mostly we are so lost in what appears, right? In and constructing a world, you know, uh, with the appearances of what's arising, whether it's visual objects and we create that world, or thoughts or emotions, right? Not seeing them as simply being appearances. And this is, this is what most of us do most of the time. Right? The practice situation here is so wonderful to kind of reconnect with that, with the understanding of the nature of, of awareness, or the nature of the mind, which is simply knowing this display of appearances. Um, and as we do that, and it, as I said, it can be done in the simplest way. This is not complicated. Just in taking a step. Moment after moment, different sensations are appearing in being known. Is there anybody who has a problem with that? I mean, isn't that what's happening? It's just, it's, you know, this tightness, this pressure, this... Whatever, whatever the particular sensations are, they're just appearing in the course of a step and being known, or in the you know the feelings of a breath, or different sensations in the body, or sounds, or thoughts, or emotions, moment after moment. It's just like this. It's like a Fourth of July fireworks display, you know. And so, can we just rest in the recognition? This is what's happening, and that the mind is knowing, moment after moment, knowing spontaneously. And also to recognize that our great, well-practiced, long-established habit is to be lost, is to be distracted in what's arising, in one way or another. You know, we like it, we don't like it, we, there's a whole host of things. So it's just to see all that, and at a certain point we see those very reactions as another display, and coming back again and again. It's really another way of saying what Upandita said, be more mindful. But for mindfulness, what I found a very helpful retranslation of that word is be undistracted. Because mindfulness, sometimes there can be too much of a sense of someone doing something. Whereas undistracted simply means coming back to that place of the innate nature of mind, which is awareness. So it's, it's always just a coming back again and again every time we are distracted. And appreciating all those qualities I mentioned, just the clarity of it, the unobstructedness of it, the emptiness of it. And this is a great place to end. <laughs> Lest I get in trouble. <laughs>
I hope, I hope that uh, you can bring this practice of real uh, interest and investigation, both those of you, you know, who are staying and also those of you who are leaving, because when you understand the nature of the mind in this way, There's not any essential difference, you know, and so you don't want to be conceptual. Okay, I did my practice, now I'm back in the world, going to be doing something else. You know, the forms are different, but the nature of the mind is exactly the same. And so it's possible to really bring that. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.